So later this month, I am going to be doing a live event. If you live in the Bay Area, Jessica Winter and I will be live at Books, Inc. in San Francisco on July 29th to discuss Jessica's debut novel, Break in Case of Emergency. The book is a tragic comedy about friendship, family, and fighting for one's sanity in a toxic workplace. The event is free, although registration is encouraged. Go to slate.com slash live for more information. Uh, hope to see you there. Come by, listen, ask questions, hang out. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. I'm Mallory Ortberg, and with us in the studio this week is Aisha Harris, another writer at Slate. Let's get started. Um, I wanted to talk this week before we went into our letters a little bit about uh, sort of a consistent stream of questioning that's been coming in, mostly through the live chat from people who are sort of curious. You know, I've got some trouble with my neighbors. I don't like the way that they're raising their kids. Um, uh, Nothing urgent, nothing where anyone's life is in danger. But the question has been sort of repeatedly, can I call Child Protective Services or can I call the police? Um, And it's not for something like I've seen a child hurt or, or in imminent danger of being hurt. I think the latest example was... Uh, I live out near the woods and I see my neighbor's kids playing in the woods a lot. And I've heard that sometimes they go into other people's backyards and I've heard rumors that they might be using other people's swimming pools. Um, should I call the cops? And and actually got a few uh, uh, letters following up from that from people who saying, yes, you should absolutely call the cops. Um, and I think that I would like to very strongly encourage you not to do so. Um, I think... Uh, that using child protective services or the police is is a hammer. It it often uh, results in um, pretty intense violence, especially for for people who are like not really white and well off. Um, and and to call somebody to use CPS almost like a toy. Like I think that these kids are doing things that I wouldn't allow my child to do. So I'd like to invoke the state and the authority of the state on this family. Uh, is is insane honestly i think that that's an insane thought to have had especially if you haven't even tried to have a conversation with your neighbors first like hey sometimes i see your kids in my backyard would you mind letting them know i'd rather they didn't um i think that that's a really important step before calling 911 or calling child protective services um there was also a letter from somebody who wanted to call cps on uh, a family who was homeschooling their children And they felt that they were part of a a movement called unschooling and that the kids weren't getting the sort of education they should. They were, you know, literate. They could read and write. But they, again, wanted to know, can I call Child Protective Services? And while I really, uh, you know, want to be sympathetic to the idea that you should look out for children and and kind of be aware if they're not being treated well, but the letter writer sort of specified, you know, the parents obviously love their children. They're healthy. They're well taken care of. They can read and write. I just don't think they're getting enough of a formal education. They don't seem to be sitting their state exams on a yearly basis, which is certainly troubling. Um, And it it sounds like they have a a bit of a relationship with their neighbors, and it's absolutely fine to want to have a conversation. But like calling CPS, I don't know if everyone knows this, but like legally, CPS is obligated to look into every request they get, no matter how far afield it is, no matter if they think that the reporter uh, has a sort of grudge against the people, they do have to check it out. So that's, you know, 
uh, a big waste of of time and resources if if you're calling and it's not I'm seeing a child being hurt. Um, you know, the, the sort of criteria for CPS to investigate often has to do with, like, signs of physical or sexual abuse. Like, uh, has a child sustained a serious physical injury? Are they at risk of one? Um, is the person legally responsible for them inflicting this kind of injury? Do you believe that somebody's been using child, uh, using a child uh, uh, for sexual exploitation? Are they being neglect? Are they not neglected? Are they not being fed? Um, so, y- you know, I just don't see how that fits any of those criteria. So I, I think kind of what this common thread is that's really important is for people who don't have a lot of experience with the ways in which the police can really hurt people, uh, especially in marginalized communities, especially LGBT people, especially black communities, especially communities of color, especially trans women of color. And they just think, if I call the police, they'll fix this problem for me. And I would really strongly urge those people um, not to think of the police like that. Um, it's it's not something that you should call because you feel like somebody's kids are playing outside too much um, or because you wish their parents taught them more algebra. I mean, I understand disagreeing with those. I understand having a conversation. That's not a matter uh, for the police. You know, you shouldn't invoke state intervention frivolously. You know, there's there's a lot is out of your hands once you call the police. Um, and, and that's really frightening. Like, you can really... Um, that can really lead to an out of control situation. Um, so I, I just, uh, I, I guess, to sort of sum all this up, um, don't call the police if someone's swimming uh, in someone else's pool. You know, talk to the person who owns the pool first. Our guest today is Aisha Harris, who's a culture blogger for Slate. She's also written for The New York Times and appeared on NPR, NBC, and the BBC, among other places. Most recently, she's written about Jessica Williams' Daily Show legacy and watching Beyonce sneeze on stage. Hello. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. Um, So while we're on the topic of trying to figure out how to handle disagreements or interactions with people who might have a different life experience than you, uh, our next letter is from an HR director who is worried about their coworker who's trying to be understanding but is, in fact, uh, being an active jerk to their other employees. Uh, Dear Prudence, I am an HR director at a small company. I have a coworker I normally get along with, although she has a number of extremely conservative views that I vehemently disagree with, but we're polite at work. Unfortunately, we're both in upper management, and most of our employees are low-income. Some are welfare-dependent. She doesn't understand what these employees' home lives are actually like, and she's upset more than one employee with her comments regarding how they should handle their issues at home. For instance, we have an employee who's struggling to leave her abusive boyfriend, mainly due to a lack of money, resources, and family support. But my coworker will say things like, well, if that were me, I would just leave. I don't understand why you keep going back. My boss is aware of this, but hasn't approached her about it, nor does he plan to. As HR, I would like to leave her out of the conversations regarding employees' home issues, but she keeps asking my boss if she can be a part of these conversations, and my boss keeps saying yes. Any advice on how to handle this? She's technically above me in both job position and seniority. Yeah, I was not (laughs) expecting uh, this letter writer to say, by the way, I'm the HR department. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the that's the bizarre thing to me because I feel like as the HR person, she should have authority. Even though she says she's above her in both job position and seniority, I'm confused as to like why the HR person doesn't have a say in whether or not this person is involved. Right. I mean, in these it doesn't sound positions. like this other person works in HR. So I, I think maybe put aside the issues of whether or not they've been there for longer than you. If you're the HR director, sort of the, the HR buck stops with you. Right. Exactly. Um, and it is also just like, I, I mean, I'm not an HR expert by any means, but it seems like it's pretty, if not illegal, like unethical for this person if she's not in HR to be discussing these issues to begin with. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of curious about this workplace where they're having conversations like this. It sounds like almost in a sort of formal setting, like talking with your boss about your your personal relationships, but maybe there are jobs where that happens. Right. There seems to be a lot of uh, lines and boundaries that are being blurred that Mm -hmm. should not be. Um, I I don't think I would ever talk to my boss about something so personal unless it was like actually somehow affecting my job. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I'm late for whatever reason or consistently late or something in the family. But this feels very, um, this doesn't feel like a healthy workplace. No, and I'm especially, I noticed that they said a lot of our employees are low income, which who's who's responsible for paying their income like <laughs> yes <laughs> that's that's sort of a big issue that i i hope maybe this hr person can bring up with the with the coworker in question like hey we are in upper management we're getting paid like apparently enough to live on and and our other employees are not like that's kind of on us right I mean, the only thing I can think of is like maybe unless they're like in some sort of government setting okay. Like, I, I, don't, I, I don't know why that would make a difference. but Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think the, the sort of most important thing is go to your boss like right now and say, hey, when this other person is involved in conversations with our lower level employees, um, she says things that are uh, super inappropriate, um, totally beyond her scope as an employee of this company and, and, you know, could cause real trouble for our company. I mean, like, I, I, I feel like you should not have someone in your in your workplace saying things to you like, I don't know why you don't just leave your boyfriend. Like, that's not something you should be saying to people at work. So I think, like, number one, tell your boss she needs to not be on these calls. But it sounds like she, the, it, she says the boss is already aware of it. So, like, may, maybe, obviously, maybe it's a point of, like, not just making her aware, but saying, like, you need to fix this. Right. Like, be in it. Um, be in it be, yeah. Like, take a stand. Say, like... Because I think I think it was just she keeps asking her boss if she can be a part of the conversations and the boss keeps saying yes. So it's not clear if if the HR director has said to the boss, this is not helpful. Right. Um, right. So, so just be more affirmative and and make it known yeah. that you this person should not be involved in any way, shape or form. Yeah. No, I mean, I think any advice on how to handle this, like, number one, this is 100 percent your responsibility. If you're the HR director, like you've got to get on the horn. I can't believe I've said get on the horn and the buck stops here in this answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't know why when I get office questions, I'm very like, well, you know, at the end of the day. <laughs> um, yeah, like it's definitely your responsibility to advocate for these employees who like make less money than her, who don't have as much sort of institutional authority and are, you know, it doesn't help anyone who's trying to leave an abusive relationship to hear. Why don't you just leave? Right. That's not a useful thing to say. Um, that's what they're <laughs> trying to do. Um, so, yeah, like you need to like 
advocate for them because you're closer in, in seniority to her. You need to go to your boss. If your boss is reluctant, maybe document these. Like, like keep keep a written record of, like, the things that she says um, because it's always helpful uh, to have a, a written record of someone who's doing something that's, that's you know, not productive or, or actively harmful to other employees. Um, and honestly, maybe right. advocate for them to get a raise. Uh, yeah. If they're working full I mean, it time. also... Yeah, I mean, it also sounds like it'd probably be useful for everyone to get some, like, more HR training if they haven't already, mm-hmm. um, just because, especially the HR person, because I, I feel like this shouldn't be a question that this HR person should be asking. Yeah, like, I feel I feel genuinely bad that, that he or she, it's not clear in the letter that this person is coming to, like me, a non-HR employee. Like, I, I, I wish this director had more... Um, resources to handle this difficult employee because I think it's absolutely a problem and you got to do something about it. Um, and and I think yeah, talk to the boss first, advocate for the other employees, and and talk to this person. Like say, it is not helpful when you tell people, hey, if I were you, I would just leave because you're not that person, and they're trying to leave, um, and you're making them feel like they shouldn't even talk about it, and and they should be ashamed of themselves. Which is uh, shame is not a useful tool for change. So now for something totally unrelated, uh, we have a letter from someone who's just started dating somebody who makes a lot more money than they do, and they're not sure how to handle it. Uh, Dear Prudence, I recently fell in love with someone who is wealthy, who could stop working tomorrow and still have plenty of money for the rest of his life. I am not. It's fine. My concern is that if our relationship deepens, I'll have to adopt his lifestyle. He's building a home right now, so if we moved in together, I'd move in with him. There'd be no hunting for a place or renovating something together. I could probably never go in on a house 50-50 with him in our pricey real estate market. So if we bought a house in the future, something I'd like to do with a partner, I wouldn't be an equal contributor, and I'd feel like it was less mine. I'm not at a place where I can save up for a substantial fuck-off fund should we break up. Not to mention expensive vacations I'm not ready to take, nice things I'm not ready to buy, etc. We're not quite ready to have these conversations with each other, which is why I feel like now is the time to ask them of a third party before I'm too emotionally invested, a train that is accelerating rapidly. How can I lay a good track now for relationship equity later? Is this a problem you've ever had? I've never had this problem. I mean, I've had the issue where I, I've had a similar problem, although it was not by any means like a very wealthy person. It was just, I was younger, he was older. Mm-hmm. Like, much older. So, like, he had um, more money than I did. I was still in college. Um, and so, you know, I I felt sort of weird about him paying for pretty much everything. Um, so she seems, uh, she doesn't actually indicate whether or not he, like, makes her feel guilty about it or whether he says things. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like they basically just avoided this conversation. So I guess my first advice would be, why don't you just talk about it? I mean, I know she says that she's not in a place to talk about it, but, like, I don't know. Maybe she could try, you know, if, if, if they're the type of relationship right now where he's paying for everything, even, like, coffee or dinner, like, why don't you try offering to pay that and then see where that goes? Um, but, yeah, I, I think they, they obviously need to have this conversation if yeah. it's bothering her so much. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think whenever you're in a relationship that has a a a power differential that makes one person uncomfortable and the other person is either perfectly comfortable with it or doesn't notice it, 
one of the kind of unfortunate realities is it often falls to the person who's uncomfortable to first bring it up. Because mm-hmm. I have a feeling your boyfriend doesn't know that you feel this way and so would never think, hey, by the way, as you and I like move towards building a partnership together, does it make you feel uncomfortable that I have so much money? Like, I, I don't think he'll ever bring it up. So, you know, unfortunately, at least in the beginning, it'll fall to her to say, hey, you might not notice this because you don't think about money the way I do, because to you, money's just always there. Um, but I I worry that if this relationship gets more serious, I'm just going to get swept up in your sort of richer lifestyle and I won't feel like an equal partner. Um, mm. And to bring it up in a way that's not like, again, it doesn't sound like he's being a jerk. So it's not like I'm worried you're going to run roughshod over me. Just just like I have concerns about how I can feel like I'm an equal to participant. I do get a lot of letters from people who are like 10 or 15 years into a relationship like this. And the wealthier partner often just kind of unconsciously thinks, well, if I pay for more stuff, my my voice counts more. And that's a horrible kind of relationship to be in, I think. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a very real fear. Um, And and. Yeah, I mean, there is. I, I feel like that if you wait too long to talk about it, and if you go like five or ten or fifteen years to do that, then like resentment might build up, um, maybe subconsciously. But like when you have a fight or a huge fight, you know that that could be the perfect time for them to say, "Well, I've paid for all of this all these years, and you haven't pulled your weight." Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also. I also think that she should probably not wait until like a moment arrives where this becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. So like if they're like, don't wait until you're trying to plan a vacation together and like he wants to go to this place, but you can't afford it. Like that's probably the worst opportunity to to wait for to to bring it up. Um, So I would say like, yeah, just bring it up sooner rather than later. And and don't don't necessarily have a pin like you don't have to pin it to a moment, Um, you know, just casually, you know point out this is how I'm feeling uh and like you said you don't have to make them feel as though you're worried about them taking advantage of you you can just present it as like I have these sort of insecurities and and thoughts about it and and what do you think Mm -hmm. and then go from there and these are I want to stress too I think these are really legitimate fears and I don't I don't want you to feel pressure that this is to the letter writer any sort of pressure like oh I should just be grateful it's just an unqualified good thing that I'm dating someone wealthy and if he wants to share that with me, I should just be grateful. I really strongly don't believe in that sort of dynamic between people. Um, if at any point he tries to say, like, why don't you just not worry about it and let me take care of you, um, then he's not listening. Because what you're saying isn't, uh, I hate the idea of having nice things. What you're saying is, I don't like the idea of feeling like my lifestyle is going to get absorbed into yours, that your choices, your preferences, your history, your buying patterns is going to set the tone for everything we do as a couple. Um, And I either have to get on board or get out. I want to feel like I matter, even if I never make as much money as you do. And that's such an important thing in a relationship. Yeah, I mean, and that's also like giving into that and and sort of letting it happen is also trying to keep up, as they may say, and and spending money you don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, if if that if that is also something that happens, like say he's not paying for everything, but you are just trying to keep up, which I have seen some couples do. Mm-hmm. And the one person who like can't keep up but still tries, you know, that's a quick way to get yourself into debt, and then that's a whole other. Issue. Totally, um, yeah. When you kind right of combine there. like feelings and guilt and money, and you're thinking. I can't just say I can't afford this because that'll drag them down. Like, don't don't feel that way. It will not drag him down. Say you can't afford something. Right. Okay. 
Well, I'm also just, by the way, picturing that she's dating the little Monopoly guy. Um, and he's got a little <laughs> top hat on. He's just like scooting around in his little car, um, which makes this question a lot more fun. Um, okay. Well, I feel like we've fixed her entire problem and now they're going to be great forever. Um, yes. And we have. Go forth and be happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, if you want us to answer your questions, please call us and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327. And leave us a voicemail and we'll answer your question live on an episode of the show. We might even call you back and uh, discuss it in further detail. So you're going to get just like an in-depth Dear Prudence session if you call and leave us a message. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Uh, If you want, you can also record your question using the voicemail app or its equivalent on your smartphone. Please, when you leave us a message, keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Send it to us at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. This one is, how do I tell my parents that they're not going to have grandkids? My parents keep trying to hook me up with members of their own ethnic community, and the whole process makes me feel like a sad discount store item. I'm 37 and haven't been in a serious relationship for 10 years, and I'm trying to make peace with the fact that I most definitely will never have children. A major reason is that I have seen the lack of support that my mother has gotten from people when it comes to my younger, visibly autistic brother, and I suspect any kids I'd have would be autistic. I'm also autistic, higher functioning, but my parents are in huge denial because they have an emotional need to have at least one quote-unquote normal child who was cured. How do I get them to back the hell off so I can live my life in relative peace? Oh man, this one, is, this one makes me really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, in in no small part because it just like comes through so loud and clear how this person's parents have made them feel about their like diagnosis and their value to the member of the like their value as a member of this family is just in like um, somehow mediating their parents' relationship to to autism in general. Right, and I mean, she says she's thirty seven, so I feel like. A huge part of that, you know, nowadays, obviously, there's still many misconceptions about autism. Um, but I feel like we've gotten a little bit better at understanding and treating it. And I, I can imagine being 37, you know, 20 years ago, that was not the case. And mm-hmm. so this, it seems to creep into her her feeling that, like, she says a major reason she doesn't want to have kids is because of the way her, <clears throat> her parents have dealt with her brother. And... Um, Yeah, I just feel really bad for her. Um, I think it's important to stress, too, at at least based on kind of my reading the letter, it doesn't say, like, she doesn't feel like she can have children because she wouldn't value a child that had autism or was on the spectrum so much as she kind of knows her own limitations. She's seen the way that her mother has had to struggle without receiving support, and she's decided that that's not something she wants. So I just want to make it especially clear that, like, it does not seem like she's saying, I wouldn't want to have a child with autism, um, that that's not kind of what's at at issue here, Um, which I think is important because that would be a serious – I think that would be um, a a really ableist view um, that would kind of overlook the value that every life has regardless of of, of ability or, or, or where you fall on the autism spectrum. Right. I mean, it seems like she's being more, I mean, I wouldn't say realistic, but I think she, she under, she, she sees that it's very difficult to do. And she worries that, and I think she has a valid reason to worry because of what she's seen her, her parents go through Mm -hmm. um, to worry that like she, 
like wouldn't be able to handle it herself or well, wouldn't have that system mm-hmm. in place. And I mean, she she says in the last couple of lines, you know, my parents have an emotional need to have at least one quote unquote normal child who was quote unquote cured, which is just horrifying. And, you know, as she points out, like any child I have would be likely to inherit um, some degree of autism. So like, what would that, what would her parents do in that situation? Like if she had a child who also uh, had autism, uh, I think she kind of knows like they would not be supportive. They would not be helpful. Like they're looking for a like neurotypical child that they can say, look at, we fixed we fixed this, which is, again, just like a horrible way to look at people with autism um, and and would be so damaging to any child that she would have. So um, that 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 just that really, really freaks me out that they would do that. I think that's just awful. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question then is, is like, well, what she asks is, is like, how do I tell them? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want this. Um, I, I, I wonder if she's brought it up at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like maybe she hasn't, and they've just been sort of like expecting it to happen eventually. Although, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if she hasn't had a serious relationship in a decade. I'm not sure why they would still uh, be so um, <clears throat> adamant about it. If, yeah. if they are being adamant, we don't know. But, yeah, and I also don't know. Like, maybe they have the sort of relationship where she talks to them like once a month and really keeps them at arm's length because. She knows that to let them in anymore would be to invite, like, really pressure-filled, painful conversations where they try to run her life. Um, right. I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess if I were in the situation, I would just sort of—I don't know if it's—so assuming that she—this is something that has been brought up before mm-hmm. um, and they've talked about it. Um, I think, you know, I would just kind of sit them down or talk to them over their phone. And, and if they brought it up again, in this case, I probably would wait until they brought it up. Um, right. And, you know, if they do, I'd just say, you know, I've decided not to to have children. And I don't think she necessarily has to say it's because of you or because I right. see how you treat them or mm-hmm. treat my brother and, and myself. Um, but I think she can say, you know, like, I just... I've made a decision for myself, and uh, that's that. Yeah. Yeah, because you're right. I think these are two separate conversations. One is I'm not going to have children. And the other deeper, thornier conversation is, and it's in large part because I've seen both the lack of support you've received and because I feel like you're looking for a neurotypical child and you won't love anyone who doesn't like live up to that ideal that only exists in your head, um, which I can really understand the letter writer not wanting to have. Um Right. But I also just hope that, like, and and I, 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 maybe the letter writer already does, but I just hope that, like, you can feel very much that, like, you, you are worthwhile as a human being without providing your parents with a grandchild. Um, you are worthwhile, like, being on the spectrum. Like, you are not um, in any way less than a neurotypical person. And I hope very much that you feel that. I don't, I don't mean to, like, assume that you don't, but just it sounds like you're getting a lot of messages about your worth and your value as a person being really conditional. And I think that that's um, just wrong. So, yeah, I, I think absolutely tell them as many times as you have to, I'm not having children. And just, like, let that be the end of a sentence. Like, sometimes when you deal with people in denial, they want to really have a lot of arguments because the hope is, well, if I can, like, back them into a conversational corner, I can get them to change their mind and to just say, I'm not having children. Actually, I'm not having children. 
Yeah, I mean, I also she she doesn't say in in the the letter whether or not she actually wants children or if it's just you know she's more or less sort of discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I hope that she's not giving like if she does really want children that she she doesn't rule out the options obviously of of adoption mm-hmm. because if if that is something she really feels. Uh, is something she really wants to have in her life, and the the main thing keeping her back is just like her parents. I mean, there's always there's always that. Right, well. right. There's I hope the she possibility. Cut herself off. Yeah, there's the possibility that she would like to have children, but because she's getting so much pressure, um, doesn't want to kind of acknowledge that. And um, that's not to say that like single parenting is really easy, and you should just like go for it and have a great time. But like you should let yourself consider every option. Like. If if being a parent at some point is something you did want to do, but you didn't want your parents involved or you wanted to adopt, like, you get to do that, too. Um, you get to do whatever you want. You are 37, and you can have all the children or none of the children, um, and everyone else can, um, you know, fuck off <laughs> a little yeah. bit, you know, but then support you, which is a hard balance. No. Um, yeah. But <laughs> I, I think, yeah, uh, clear boundaries with these parents and let them know, like— if you, if you don't want to have kids, you know, tell them, don't argue, just say I'm not going to do it. You don't have to justify that decision. It's like whatever you're ordering for lunch. No one's like, but why are you getting a Reuben? Um, <laughs> you want a Reuben. All right, we've got one more. Uh, and this one is uh, kind of combining all the elements of the previous letters, actually. It's, it's both personal and it's at work, which is um, interesting. Uh, and this one's called An Old Familiar Face. Dear Prudence, a few years after I graduated from high school, my favorite teacher, Mr. Thomas, went to jail for having an affair with another student. She was a junior at the time, but he started inviting her into his classroom during lunch when she was a freshman. I was disappointed and disgusted, but didn't think too much about it until, lo and behold, Mr. Thomas recently became a coworker of mine. He's charismatic and good at his job, so he's become quite popular. I still avoid him every chance I get. I have no respect for him and feel burdened by the secret of his past. I don't feel like it's my business to tell my boss about his record. I don't want to cause drama by telling coworkers what he did. I just hate feeling like I'm protecting this man. What should I do? Ooh. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess my first question is, if, if he went to jail for having an affair with another student, Presumably that student was underage. Mm-hmm. I don't know the law in every state. I know it varies, but like, wouldn't he have to register as, as a sex offender that in was, certain states? That was my first thought as well, which is that you, you shouldn't discount the possibility that he is registered as a sex offender and your boss knows. Right. That was my thought. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like especially, I mean, granted, I know not every... Uh, employee employment place of employment necessarily does thorough background checks but it feels like it'd be pretty easy to like even if it wasn't just him registered as a sex offender if you googled him right it would come uh, up yeah so i i kind of i kind of have a feeling that this the the employee the employer maybe already knows yeah and i'd also just as a quick aside like he didn't have an affair with a student. He committed statutory rape is, I think, an important distinction um, to make. Good point. Um, which is just the the language the letter writer used. And I think it's always important to remember, like, you don't go to jail for having an affair. Um, that's not illegal. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a real chance your boss already knows. 
Um, I, I find myself kind of torn on this one because on the one hand, I do believe pretty strongly that like if someone has served time for a crime that they committed, um, they deserve a chance once they have done that to to have a life um, and to be able to work and to attempt to to move on. Like I, I don't believe in, you know, lifelong punishment after you've left prison. Um, but on the other hand, this is really hard for her personally to feel like she's keeping a secret about someone who has, you know, previously abused authority to to hurt a, a young woman. Yeah, I part of me feels, though, as if. Uh, I don't know, I it, it I kind of feel as though I would feel more um, upset about it if if this in place of employment was like a place where younger people right it doesn't sound like like they're working with students or young people right which which leaves me inclined to to say you know maybe just stay out of it and you know try to continue avoiding him like the plague and um don't don't engage um of course there might come a time when she he or she does have to engage so Mm -hmm. i'm i'm not sure exactly how how that would might play out well i do Um, think at least an option is given that odds are at least good that your boss does already know, um, given that like hiring somebody, usually you Google their name. If you've committed a statutory rape, you're almost certainly on a sex offender registry. I mean, if you've been convicted of it. Uh, so it's possible that you could consider at some point going to your boss and saying, you know, I realize this is really um sensitive information, um, but I, I happen to know Mr. Thomas. I was a, a, a student at the school at the time of his arrest and it makes me very uncomfortable to work with him can you help me you know make sure that we're not put on projects together and again i wouldn't necessarily recommend you do this if you didn't if there was no chance your boss already knew like if he had not been convicted wasn't on a registry and and had managed to sort of like uh hide it um but but since it's out there since it's public information um i think you can at least consider if you have a good working relationship with your boss you know, making that request. It seems like a reasonable request. Like if I was a manager and one of my employees came to me and said, can you just help me not work with this person that I have like a very painful legal history around? Um, you know, that's a possibility at least. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think that's a good. good I feel like we should be fighting more. Make. <laughs> you know, I, no. you and I have had too many similar ideas and I just think this person should I, I I don't I don't actually don't have a this is not something I really want to like make a goofy joke about. I retract all of this. <laughs> uh yeah, I mean I yeah, I I can't say I disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Um I I would not recommend that this person, you know, leave notes all over the place saying this person is a, a sex offender or right. you know, the harassment or anything like that. Because I honestly even it's not gonna make you feel any better, really. Um right. And I, I really don't to. think that that should be a punishment for having committed like a, a crime. Like I really even yeah. even when it makes me uncomfortable, I really strongly believe like you should not be followed around by private citizens who who try to actively harm you. Like I think that that's I feel that strongly, even though I really dislike the thought of this guy. Yeah. Um, and the only other thing I would say is, uh, you know, keep your eyes open. If you feel like at some point he starts um, 
doing anything that kind of puts you in mind of what he did when you were in high school. Like if he's spending a lot of time around like much younger female employees or trying to abuse his power in some way uh, or or sexually harassing people, um, you know, bear that in mind. Like talk to HR. Like if, if he does something that suggests to you he's not looking to turn his life around, he's kind of trying to repeat old patterns like – um, you know, you're you're in a, maybe a stronger position than most to kind of say, hey, this is actually in keeping with with his history and we should be really mindful of that. Um, again, not to like follow him and shadow his every move, but but be aware that, um, you know, something that that could be useful if like he was harassing somebody and they thought, oh, maybe this is the only time he's ever done it. And I don't want to make waves like you could be helpful there. Yeah, you wouldn't recommend them uh, recommend her like tell or, like, warn her coworkers, would you? That's hard. That's really hard. Because on the one hand, I would want I would want her to feel like she could warn other women about, like, a possible uh, a person who would abuse his power. And then on the other hand, you know, it goes back to that same issue of he's been to prison. He's working somewhere that's not around children. He does have a right to try to start his life over again. Um I, th- I think I think I would encourage her not to tell other coworkers unless he gives her a reason to. Um, I would say to I would say talk to your boss because almost certainly your boss knows and say this person makes me uncomfortable. Please don't make me work with him. Um, and I would say hold firm to that. Like that's a very reasonable request to say I don't want to work with the teacher who committed statutory rape when I was in high school. Um, that's really fair to say um, and hold mm-hmm. to that. And if your boss doesn't help you there and isn't supportive, like. Go to HR, consider looking for another job, consider uh, escalating things. Like, that's a really firm boundary that you have the right to uphold. Um, and then beyond that, I think if if he's doing good work and he's not bothering other employees, he's not abusing any of his authority, um, I think you need to talk to a therapist or, like, a spiritual advisor or family members or people who don't work there to you know, give vent to your feelings, which matter a lot, but but should not be used to handicap him. I'm sorry, not handicap, to hamstring him um, uh, from being able to to move on with his life. Jeez, well. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. I wish I, I, wish I could have uh, disagreed with you more. Well, but, uh... damn it. Uh, let's <laughs> fight about something. Um, no, uh, this was great. And thank you so much. I know that you're you're at work right now, and I really, really appreciate your taking the time to be on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate being on the show. If you ever come back, I will pick letters and I will just <laughs> immediately play devil's advocate and I will encourage everyone to just end their relationships and run away to the moon and we'll fight. That sounds great. Well, I'd like to apologize once again for having a guest who is reasonable and of many of the same opinions as myself. Uh, I have once again let you, the viewer or listener, down um, by failing to provide you with the sort of no-holds-barred that you've come fighting that you've come to associate with the Dear Prudence brand. Um, Next time, it's going to be a bloodbath. Um, One thing that I wanted to talk about before we headed out for the week, uh, I was recently sent back uh, a version of the column from my editor who had a couple of suggestions, as is his want. Uh, And I realized that there's a phrase that I've been using maybe twice a week in almost every column when I start to answer someone's questions, which is, you know, there are really two issues here that I'd like to disentangle. Uh, 
which is such a stupid verbal tick. Like, there's always multiple issues, uh, and it's just something that I've noticed I'm saying all the time, as well as the word adjudicate. I'm using it too much. Uh, I, 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 I like that word a lot. It makes me feel fancy and smart to say it. Um, but I know that I am letting you, the reader now, not the listener, uh, down by always saying that there are two issues, and I'm going to try. Now that I'm kind of aware of it, I have a feeling I'm going to catch myself using it all the time, like... I'm a little worried that I'll never be able to answer another question again. But there are always two issues. There are always two issues. You know what? I'm not wrong. There's always two issues. Uh, And the first issue is always like the surface value. Can I say this? Can I ask for this? Do I have the right to stop this? And then the other one is always, by the way, I'm super mad about something that I haven't talked about in 15 years. How does that apply to this? Um, And so you do have to disentangle those two things because those are two very separate conversations. And if you try to have them both at once, you're going to have a horrible fight. And if there's one thing I want for all of you, the viewers, the listeners, and the readers, uh, is is to not have horrible fights unless you are ready to have them. Like if you know a horrible fight has to happen, you're prepared for it, you're hydrated, you're well-rested, you have something to do afterwards, you've brought half a sandwich, so you're not going to be like hungry and screaming – do it by all means. But I don't want any of you accidentally backing into horrible fights and realizing, oh no, this has turned into a huge issue and I wasn't prepared and I really have to pee, but I can't ask to leave this fight to use the bathroom because this is one of those fights where someone's saying like, it's not about the thing, it's about the principle. And you can't say, I have to go pee when someone's yelling at you like that. You you just can't. So in conclusion, life is a rich tapestry. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. iTunes is an opaque overlord, but we know for sure that reviews do help new listeners find the podcast. Plus, we'd love to know what you think. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence and accept no substitutes. I have no regrets about saying that all the time. Life is a rich tapestry. Uh, and it's something that I say to myself to keep myself from saying something much more judgmental. Um, it's just a nice sort of non-committal way of saying, you know, the world is full of so many things, many of which I hate, uh, but I can't do anything about it. And I have to remind myself that it's all a rich, rich tapestry. <laughs>